Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and this week we are going to dive into our Blind Date Diaries concept and cover WCW Great American Bash 1990 as we approach the 30th anniversary of that event coming up within the next week or so. I thought it would be a good idea to watch that show from start to finish because I've never watched that entire show before in all my existence as a wrestling fan and give you guys the blind date diary that I think it richly deserves. Uh, so uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy my uh, my honest thoughts and opinions on this show that took place just about 30 years ago. Um, I've only seen the Sting and Ric Flair match, uh, the, the heavyweight title match, the one that everyone talks about, uh, the one that, you know, gave Sting his first world title win and uh, really uh, cemented him as a bona fide star and main event player in the world of professional wrestling. Everything else I have not watched on this card, so uh, or I hadn't watched on this card until just recently when I sat down and watched it and took some notes. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it with you guys. And uh, I'm also looking forward to seeing more of you, a part of our fun that we have on social media i'd love for you guys to give us a follow on twitter our handles at kicking out two k-i-c-k-n-o-u-t and the number two as well as hit the like button and join us over on facebook facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two um there's links to archive shows. We got polls and pictures. I try to make it a fun, lighthearted atmosphere, like I tell you each and every week when I plug the social media. So, uh, you know, hit us up, like us on Facebook, give us a follow on uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm I'm in the stages of you know trying to develop maybe an Instagram page, maybe eventually YouTube. Um, you know, I'm you know. I'm not technological savvy, so uh, you know I uh, try to do my best with the social media that I have currently right now. Don't want to overwhelm myself because when I feel overwhelmed, I have a tendency to shut down. Uh, you could just ask my wife that, but <laughs> that's another that's another podcast for another day. But I thought it would uh, you know I would just keep you guys up to date as to what we got going on and kicking out it too and let you know that there are plans to expand our presence on social media and uh, hopefully you guys can be a part of it as well so hopefully you know in the relatively not too distant future i'll have an instagram set up and uh i'll have uh you know maybe a youtube page as well and uh you know build the brand that is kicking out it too um Speaking of building the brand, this brand, Kicking Out at Two, is also part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. By uh, heading over to Podbean, searching Retromania with a W, you'll find all the backlog archives of this show, as well as marking out the day's weekend warriors. Hulkamania is dead. Gaijin Wrestling Radio, Origins of Attitude, uh, tons of bonus content that we have going on over there. Uh, Kobe Nida has, uh, has a playground full of evergreen retro pro wrestling podcasts for your listening ears over 300 hours of uh of, of some you know f fan accounts of our fandom as pro wrestling fans um so uh you know head on over there retromania with a w on podbean you can also find us on stitcher spreaker spotify google play and apple Podcasts, and any other podcast platform available okay um formulaic as it is just like we do every week plug the social media and now let's get into it um you know i'm trying to break free from that but it just seems to just roll off the tongue so naturally for me to do the intro do the social media then get into the subject at hand get it out of the way um don't want to be too much of a social media plugger on this show but just want you guys to know where you can find us and where you can interact and have some fun and relive your fandom as a wrestling fan so um, nonetheless we are um covering the wcw great american bash 1990 pay-per-view from July the 7th, 1990, the Baltimore Arena, uh, roughly 14,000 fans were in attendance. Uh, this show, remembered mostly for Sting's world title victory over Ric Flair um, in the main event, is like I said, cementing Sting as a bona fide main event star in the world of professional wrestling. Um, and just recently, I sat down and I watched this entire show from start to finish, and you are about to find out my honest and true thoughts and opinions on what transpired during my time viewing this, this pay-per-view. Um, we open with a video package highlighting some of the stars from the National Wrestling Alliance, because at the time, this was they were still associated with the NWA. Um, uh, there's a patriotic theme to the video that kind of coincides with the name of the event, Great American Bash. Um, and going back and watching it, um, you notice obviously 30 years later, technology has, you know, drastically changed, um, you know, 
taken multiple 360s and just continues to evolve in our culture and in our society. Nobody ever thought that, you know, 30 years ago we would have smartphones and we would be communicating, you know, through a phone more than anything else. Um, so, uh, who, who, who would have thought 30 years ago there was going to be a social media? But nonetheless, uh, when I watched it, it just showed that, you know, how far we've grown in terms of technology with the, um, with the, with the video package that opened that show. It wasn't anything special, but it was, you know, okay for the times. WCW wasn't known for their best production quality, um, even though they were a television company. Uh, they were not known for... A television company that put out wrestling was not known for their best production quality. So um, it showed in that video package. Um, and then we get Jim Ross introducing us to the show along with Bob Cottle. They're both sitting at ringside, and they run down some of the matches on the card, which include uh, the Rock and Roll Express versus Doom for the World Tag Team titles, the North American debut of Big Van Vader and the main event featuring Sting and Ric Flair for the World Heavyweight title. Obviously that match getting the most uh, discussion in the open between both of them. And then we open this card with Nature Boy Buddy Landell going one-on-one -on -one with Brian Pillman. Um, Here's a few things I noticed from this match. Number one, uh, Pillman's music cue was late. He came out halfway down the ramp and then they decided to play his music. So once again, another... Um, uh, another example of uh, WCW's production um, lagging, falling a little bit behind, as well as the lower third graphic did not show Brian Pillman's name. It only it was blank. Um, not sure what was going on there, but uh, found that rather interesting. Um, Pillman relatively new probably i would say about a year into the into the, you know the company at the time he was with WCW i believe i believe he made his debut at the 89 great american match if i'm not mistaken um <clears throat> against um wild bill Irwin. but um in this match here he's wrestling buddy lindell he got a strong reaction from the crowd girls it's big like baby face female reaction um very reminiscent of the the, the reactions that the von eric kids would get in texas uh when they would wrestle at the sportatorium or even at those big texas stadium shows the girls would just go crazy for them it was it wasn't on par with that but it it was very reminiscent reminded me of um some of those reactions when pillman came out so um I thought this was a good match, good contrast to Styles. Um, Landell, at times, slowed down Pillman's aerial assault. Um, Pillman would get the best of him with a lot of drop kicks and some high-impact maneuvers. Um, like I said, Mandel, Landell managed to slow down Pillman um, and controlled the majority of the match, as the heels usually do during that time. It's very formulaic. Um, the finish came when Buddy sent Pillman over the top rope, but Pillman managed to hang on and climb up to the top to deliver a flying crossbody for the win at 9 minutes and 29 seconds. Um, crowd was into it. It was a solid opener, I felt. Um, just the right amount of time for them to kick things off. I felt like if it went a little too long, um, it probably would have become monotonous but it was a it was a nice little opener to get things going um good action top to bottom like i said good contrasting styles with the technician in landell and the high flyer and pillman um told a told a solid story to open up the card wasn't great but wasn't terrible either it was you know just good for what it was um they didn't send it to gordon Soley. he's going to be doing the majority of the uh, the interviews um uh, for this card um, and he previews the Sting versus Ric Flair match Vader's debut and the debut of El Igante in the ring um, who will be a part of a, a six-man tag team match later um, and in this particular instance Gordon Soley really putting over the importance of the Ric Flair Sting world title match it seems to be a common thread in the theme that I'll be discussing as we go along with this recap this blind date diary um, really emphasizing the importance of that main event and the opportunity that Sting has in this world title match against the veteran you know world champion Ric Flair I thought it was a nice touch um, and like I said a common thread that's going to be used throughout this show on, on Gordon Soley's end um, we get to the next match and it's the Iron Sheik Bubba I had told Blasi you said number one I got number one you said yeah Iron Sheik um, went one on one with Captain Mike Rotunda um, the father of WWE superstar The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, otherwise known as Erwin R. Scheister, most notably known as Erwin R. Scheister. Um, 
Captain Mike, yeah, he had kind of like a um, a yacht club sailor kind of gimmick that was pretty silly. Uh, both men were already in the ring at this point in time. And the match kicked off with uh, Sheik going on the attack before the bell even rang. Um, this, I'll be honest with you, this was not a great match. It was short. It was slow. Um, Sheik obviously not in the, uh, the, he was well past his better days. Um and this was obviously during a period of time where he needed the money. There's an interesting story I heard about Iron Sheik regarding his WCW run, or his NWA run. Apparently, um, you know, Iron Sheik, the way that the contracts were structured, at least some of the contracts, I don't know if all the contracts were structured, but I read, I heard this on a Jim Cornette shoot interview that um, they only used Iron Sheik for a handful of dates in like 1989. And... Um, Part of his deal was was that if there wasn't notice given by um, WCW NWA that they were not going to renew Sheik's deal, that Sheik's deal was automatically going to roll over into another year. And the the brain trust within World Championship Wrestling that were um, that were dealing with the contracts totally forgot about that and realized that Iron Sheik was on the payroll um, and at this point they had no choice but to use him even though he wasn't you know really producing the quality of work that he had once produced in his later in his earlier years um, and this was an example of it working with um, Mike Rotundo here um, you know Mike Rotundo didn't really get a whole lot of offense in very short you know short flurry of offensive maneuvers um Sheik was Sheik was relying more on getting the heat with the audience being the foreign heel which I thought was okay the crowd was into it a little bit kind of jawing back and forth with them what he lacked in his skill and ability given the limitations because of his age and his injuries he made up for it with his character trying to really jaw with the crowd and get them to 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 get behind rotundo more which i i applauded the effort there um the finish came when the iron sheik went for a double underhook suplex and rotundo countered with um a very <laughs> as jim ross would say bowling shoe ugly backslide that Sheik tried countering for the win um at six minutes and 46 seconds your winner captain mike rotundo um didn't expect anything great out of this match it was a slow match but i'm glad it ended when it did because it was kind of bordering the it was teetering that line of you know get me out of here i can't take much more of this you know what i mean like as a viewer and you could even hear some of the fans chant boring during the match um you know it's not not a, not a smattering but there was you know a couple people here and there boring boring so um yeah the baltimore crowd was uh was very lively um in the early parts of the show and especially during this match but when they didn't like their when they didn't like what they were seeing they let them know about it too very reminiscent of the philadelphia crowds that most wrestling fans talk about um we come back and it's gordon Soley, uh who's standing with harley race discussing the upcoming match with tommy wildfire rich uh harley race mentions wildfire rich defeating him for the nwa world title many years back uh, harley race also says that he plans to take care of tommy rich and then come back out with the fans and watch the main event together uh, which i found interesting um, but like i said that common thread that they're using to really build up the importance of sting and flair having other wrestlers and superstars and performers comment on this um thought it was a nice touch even like i said harley race mentioning you know that he's going to come back out and sit with the audience to watch this match thought it was uh, a nice touch um on his part uh, he further states he's made many predictions over the years in wrestling and if flair isn't on his toes tonight he will get beat um like i said um nice touch i thought it was interesting that they tried to include harley race's history with tommy rich in this promo dating back to their infamous rivalry in mid-atlantic championship wrestling um like i said also found it interesting how they had him weigh in on the main event um like i said helped add importance to the match having a former world champion former nwa world champion with a lot of credibility um comment on it nice touches all around wasn't the greatest harley race promo but the the adding the importance of the main event and trying to tie in his history with tommy rich i think made up for that um next match here we got doug furnace going one-on-one -on -one with dutch mantel um this match was not a good match at all uh didn't really seem to pick up uh, at least that's how i felt 
watching it. Um, also felt like just watching it, both guys didn't really click. They didn't have, they weren't in sync. Chemistry wasn't there. Definitely went longer than I would have liked when I watched it. Um, about five minutes in, I was hoping it was going to be done, and there was still another six minutes and change left. Uh, to be quite honest with you, I would have given the, the the extra time that this match had to Brian Pillman and um, Buddy Landell opening the show. I really would have, um, because it was a solid match, and if they went a few more minutes, I think they really could have told a well-thought-out story. Um, but they gave it to these two guys, and like I said, just didn't really, um, didn't, didn't really click. You know, Furnace... Uh, Oklahoma guy, uh, one of, from what I understand, one of the Jim Ross's hires um, during this era. At least Jim Ross had recommended that the company hire him. Tremendous athlete. Uh, not taking away, you know, um, his ability. Doug Furness had a very limited run in the United States. He was a big name in Japan. Um, uh, at one point in time, uh his limited run in the United States came during this period in WCW in a singles role, and then eventually, you know, a number of years later, tagging up with Philip LaFon uh, as a tag team in, in the WWF, not really having a, a, a substantial run um, over there as well. But, um, you know, for those of you that have any kind of interest in wrestling history and aren't familiar with Doug Furness, Google him, uh, YouTube him. You might find some good stuff from Japan. He was a very hard-hitting, snug kind of wrestler, but also very athletically gifted, had a great look. Um, but for whatever reason, it just didn't come together for him. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Dutch, he's a veteran of the game. He, you know, Dutch had been everywhere. He was a journeyman's um, territory wrestler, uh Big name in Tennessee um, for the Jarrett's. I believe he worked for the Fullers too in uh, in in uh, Pensacola, Alabama area. Um, I could be wrong, but um, he's been pretty much everywhere. Uh, veteran of the game, um, but for whatever reason, they just didn't mesh well on this night. Um, and the finish came when uh, Furnace nailed Dutch with a snap belly-to-belly -belly suplex at 11 minutes and 18 seconds. Um, like I said, at one point, there was a period of time in this match where these two guys just were trying. The, the transition and the timing was just off. Um, I don't know if you know someone was lost out there or whatever, but it just didn't seem to really come off very well um, between the two of them. Next, we have Gordon Soley, who is with Jim Cornette, and he's he's there to discuss the United States Tag Team Championship match between the Midnight Express and the Southern Boys. Um, Cornette rants on about some of the other matches on the card, including the main event, but then he transitioned to his tag match, um, and he asked the Southern Boys if they have what it takes to beat the Midnight Express for the tag team titles. He said that they may have been champs on one occasion, but not on this day. Um... It was a solid promo from Cornette. Um, I was expecting a little more animation, but um, a lot of these promos that you'll 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 hear me discuss, if you go back and you watch this event, um, a lot of them felt very rushed. I don't know if there was a timing issue with the whole show and whoever was directing the show was just trying to push people along, but it felt very rushed. Cornette's promo, a lot of these guys' promos that were with Gordon Soley um, pre and post match. So uh, this was an, this was one of the first that I noticed in particular that um, Cornette just felt like he either he talks really fast or he felt rushed. I don't know what it was, but um, it just it, to me it just felt like it just kind of went by like that. Um, our next match here is the Harley Race Wildfire Tommy Rich match. Um, and Gary Michael Capetta, the ring announcer, uh, before the match, had tried to add some importance to it as he was introducing the men, um, highlighting their accolades as both former great world heavyweight champions within the NWA, um, in a way trying to remind us fans of their rivalry that these two had had, um, relive the prestige of it. Uh, but, you know, this wasn't the best outing from these two. Their better ring days were behind them both. Um, Race wasn't also the performer he once was. I believe this was his, if I'm not mistaken, this was like his one of his last matches of his career. I know he would 
have a series of matches. I think he would tag with Vader against Ric Flair and someone else in, in 93 when he was managing Vader, but it was like as like a special attraction. But this was like one of his true last matches. He was even wearing like the the, the, the purple and gold of the of his King Harley race gimmick um, from from WWF. Um, the guys, they tried to make up for it with some of the outside the uh, action uh, on the floor and on the ramp. Um, Obviously, this is not a classic match that old school wrestling fans remember from their rivalry in 1981. Um, I will say the commentators did highlight the history of their rivalry um, and, and Tommy Rich's upset victory over Harley Race for the NWA World Heavyweight title in 1981 um, to kind of make up for whatever they lacked in in-ring action. But um, that was really about it. That was probably the highlight of this match was discussing their rivalry from the past, which was very unfortunate. Um, the finish came when Rich went for a, a flying cross body to race, but race rolled over to counter and hooked the leg for the win at six minutes and 32 seconds. Um, like I said, not the best performance from these two. As a matter of fact, um, their in-ring days were definitely behind them. I'm not shitting on the match here, uh, but I'm just trying to call it like I see it. Uh, you could definitely tell that... Um, Race's injuries and his age had showed in this match. And, uh, you know, I don't know how old Tommy Rich was at that time, but uh, you could tell he wasn't the performer that he once was either. Um, next up, Gordon Soley is standing with Paul E. Dangerously and Mean Mark. For those of you that aren't aware who Mean Mark is, he is The Undertaker. Um, Paulie predicts that Ric Flair will defeat Sting and then goes on to say that Mean Mark will be the heir apparent to the throne when he defeats Lex Luger for the United States Championship later in the evening. Um, mean Mark grabs a, a Lex Luger shirt, rips it up. You hear some yelling and screaming from him as Gordon Soley wrapped up the interview. Um, you know, more hype for the main event from these guys, which I thought was a, a, a nice touch, that common thread that has just worked very well. I really dug it. Uh, really dug the, the the other competitors and the other performers acknowledging this match and how big it is. I, I thought it was good stuff. Um, and at that time, the United States champion within the National Wrestling Alliance and WCW was the automatic number one contender to the World Heavyweight title. So Paulie reminding us that with a, with a victory over Luger tonight, Mean Mark could be in line for a title shot. I thought that was a nice touch as well. Um, up next, probably what I would consider the match of the night so far on this show was the Southern Boys against the Midnight Express for the United States Tag Team Championship. The Southern Boys being Tracy Smothers and, and Steve Armstrong. Um, eventually, they would rename themselves as the Young Pistols, I think, because the whole Southern Boys with the, the Confederate flag thing just wasn't really, wasn't really doing, wasn't really catching on and... Um, Eventually, they would rename themselves. But nonetheless, this tag match here, um, really good stuff. The Midnights actually got a nice reception from the crowd, despite the fact that they were being portrayed as the heels. Um, both teams started off hot with a brawl, uh, making its way around the ringside area. We saw a lot of double-team mo moves from the Southern boys, slowing down the Midnights during this opening sequence. Thought it was fun, some fun stuff. Um, as usual, Cornette, John with the crowd, getting the usual banter to, uh, to, to, to put, on, put some heat on him, as well as the Midnights. Great back-and-forth match all around. Action was just from start to finish. Um, crowd was really into this match the entire way. Um... And, you know, two, two styles meshing really well. The Southern Boys kind of had a mixture of technical wrestling and high-flying ability matching up against the experience and craft, crafty ability of the Midnights. Um, as usual, we got, we got to see some great double-team combination maneuvers from the Midnight Express, along with the Southern Boys as well, the quick tags in and out. Um, and every time, you know, the Midnights would bump like crazy for the for the baby faces, the, the crowd just erupt. It was it was some really fun stuff. Um, Cornette would, you know, lose his mind on the floor like he usually does. Crowd would eat that up as well. Um, but it, at certain times in the match, especially with some of the Midnight's double team maneuvers, the crowd kind of took a liking to the Midnight's. Would pop a few times if there was a sequence of moves that the Midnight's had um put on these guys or if it was like a quick tag or they snuck behind the referee's back the crowd in baltimore was kind of cheering the heels at some point it wasn't full on but they were they were acknowledging it and they were embracing it i felt um watching this so i thought this was interesting um 
the, the dynamic in the crowd was very unique. Uh, the finish came when uh, Bobby Eaton sent, sent Tracy Smothers into the ropes as the referee was distracted by Steve Armstrong. Stanley nails Smothers with a kick to the back of the head, and Eaton rolled him up for the win at 18 minutes and 14 seconds. Um, great match. Like I said, right now at this point, match of the night. Uh, both teams worked really hard. Crowd just ate it all up. Super into this match. I was into this match. I had heard some reviews of this match on uh, other podcasts that this was a great match. Um, Conrad Thompson in particular puts this over huge. as one of the best tag team matches he's ever watched in wrestling history. Uh, this was a really good and fun tag team match. Enjoyed it from top to bottom. Um, and one of the the less talked about tag team matches go out of your way to watch this match for sure 100 percent. if you don't watch this whole show watch this match in particular southern boys versus the midnight express united states tag team championship from great american bash 1990 i don't think you'd be disappointed um speaking of great tag teams gordon Soley is with the free birds michael hayes and jimmy jam garvin um and the birds they talk about their match coming up with the steiner brothers um Nothing really crazy about this promo here, um, other than the fact that uh, the crowd was uh, was getting on them um, pretty hard as they were trying to talk. But um, the birds just basically, you know, said that you know the Steiners aren't going to be the same the same after this match after we get through with them. But it wasn't really anything special. It didn't really get me super hyped um, to watch the match, even though I love both teams and this match i was looking forward to the birds didn't give me any more of a reason in their promo let's just say um up next we have the z-man tom zink going one-on-one -on -one with the debut of big van vader in north america um vader got the big uh, pyrotechnic treatment for his entrance um he did some sort of ceremonial gesture um, with his headgear that he had worn, that traditional like big like helmet shoulder pad kind of deal with the spikes hanging out of it that goes over his head, covering his face. Um, and then uh, he did some sort of hand gesture and the thing shot off some steam. Crowd seemed to react to that. Um, and, you know, Vader didn't really waste much time on Z-Man. Uh, a lot of his, you know, tr his standard... His, his standard stuff, the clubbing forearms, the heavy body shots. Uh, this was a showcase to, to 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 show what Vader was all about. He was definitely going to be a player within WCW, NWA. Um, and they they put him in there with Tom Zink to, to highlight that. Um, dominant performance. Um, you know, the, the finish comes with a press slam, vertical suplex, and a heavy clothesline, then leading to a running big splash off the ropes for the win at 2 minutes and 16 seconds. Um, really put over Vader. Talked about, you know, how some of his history overseas in Japan, but for the most part, they were really showcasing him as a big name in the NWA and WCW. The debut of him in North America. Thought it was a nice touch. Um, and didn't last too long wasn't too short either got to see just enough of him to make us want to see more so that was kind of cool um up next is another interview with gordon Soley, who's with the horsemen ole anderson arn anderson sid and barry windham and they discussed their big six-man tag team match against the dudes with attitudes elegante junkyard dog and mr wonderful paul orndorff um windham basically uh takes over this interview and predicts that they're going to get rid of the Eligante thanks to the help of their big man, their equalizer, Sid. Um, and Ole Anderson had uh, discussed um, his role in the show, which would be um, handcuffed to Eligante for the main event, which I'll get into in a little bit, um, but not the best promo. They didn't even let Arn Anderson talk, and Arn Anderson is the best talker out of all of them. So I found that rather odd that Arn Anderson didn't even get any promo time Wyndham and Ole were the ones that really uh, took over the stick. Um, not a big, not a great promo, honestly. And once again, another situation where I felt this promo was rushed. I don't know what it was. If they were, like I said, timing issues with the show. If they felt they needed to squeeze this in, but then they had to rush it. If if that was the case, then don't do it. You know what I mean? Um, but it was just a, I, I found it surprising that Arn Anderson, who is probably one of the greatest talkers, top top 10 of all time in wrestling in my opinion and i'm a big arn anderson mark so maybe i'm a little biased but in my opinion arn anderson top 10 talker 
didn't didn't have any say in this promo. I thought it was a little surprising. I, I was taken aback by it because usually when you get the horseman in there and Arn's in the picture, you always go to double A, but they didn't. And uh, I, I, I think I, I think that the timing issues and rushing these promos was a result of that. Um, up next, we have the fabulous Freebirds going up against the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, the Freebirds represented by Michael P.S. Hayes and Jimmy Jam Garvin. Um, the match started out pretty sloppy um, with the birds jumping the Steiners from behind and then both teams brawling um, to kick things off until the Steiners eventually took the advantage and, uh, you know, slowed down the birds a little bit. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things here that struck me during this match that I was kind of surprised made the cut um, on WWE Network. Now, I know there's thousands of hours of footage that these people have to go through in order to put it on the network and you're going to miss some things, you know, here and there, but and just right off the bat let me say i don't condone this kind of language but i'm just giving you the the comprehensive honest recap as to what i watched um it won't you know in that part of the, the early part of the match where um the free birds you know were out on the floor licking their wounds after steiner's got the best of them in that little early brawl when the bell rang um the camera gets an up close shot of about like four or five guys in the front row and they're all they're all chanting the word faggot at, at uh, jimmy jam garvin now 30 years ago unfortunately our culture and our society wasn't accept, accepting of um homosexuality and anyone who had uh presented themselves in a very flamboyant manner was automatically typecast as a homosexual and using the derogatory language such as that f word um and you know garvin and hayes um wore makeup when they came out and they had like you know flashy ring attire and so that was what i think kind of led to the crowd with the chance at garvin i was taken aback by it because it was a clear camera shot of the cameraman you know showing the fans in the front row getting into it and you could see about four or five of them all in unison yelling this word at garvin and i was just i, I was i was <laughs> I was taken aback by it. Like I said, there's thousands of hours of footage that you can you can uh, comb through, you know, on the WWE Network before it makes it. And um, this is something that they obviously missed. But I was very surprised by it. And once again, don't condone this any kind of language. Don't condone any of this behavior. But um, you know that that that's what we saw. Um, and then um, <clears throat> the um, the derogatory terms didn't. Um, and there as uh, Rick Steiner motioned for Michael Hayes um, to get in the ring and calling him a faggot as well. Um, you could hear it clear as day. Him kind of motioning for him and say, come on, get in the ring, faggot. And uh, I was really surprised by that. I was just, I was like, holy cow. Um, and as I was watching this, I was doing a, I was, I was texting my brother. Uh, and I told him, you know, what I was doing and, you know, the recap for, for this podcast. And uh, he, he, he writes back, not surprised. Uh, and he recalled a, a story where the Steiner brothers wrestled for independent group Big Time Wrestling. Um, and he went and saw a show, I believe it was in Providence. Rhode Island and Rick and Scott wrestled the spirit squad and had implied that the, and they cut a promo on the mic and they implied that uh, the spirit squad were from San Francisco. And uh, the narrative many, many years ago was that a large population of the homosexual community uh, emanated and lived in the San Francisco, California area. Um, and this was a couple of years ago when homosexuality is more accepted and the majority of our culture accepts it as a part of our society um and i was i was really surprised by that you know he my brother said not surprised uh, and then i went back and and this isn't any kind of smear campaign i'm just only trying to relate um what i saw on the on the the pay-per-view watching it and what i experienced in person um my brother and i went and a, and a good buddy of mine went and saw an indie show locally in the Connecticut area. I believe it was in like 08 or 09. Um, I think it was 08, 2008. Um, and the main event was Scott Steiner up against Samoa Joe in the main event. And I believe Samoa Joe was the TNA world champion at the time. 
um, or he was just about to be the champ, or I don't remember entirely, but he was the champ at the time, uh, and he wrestled Scott Steiner in the main event. And I don't remember the main event being anything to write home about, but um, I remember the the high school gym where this this show took place um, was in a largely predominant African American community, and the only reason why I know that is because the high school I used to um, attend and play sports for used to take on this high school in random sports. Like I played on the basketball team. I played on the football team. Um, and we used to take on this school, uh, Bloomfield high. Um, and they were the, I believe they were the Bloomfield warriors, if I'm not mistaken. And so a large part of their population was African-American and this show, because it was held at this high school and it was in this town. And it's a matter of fact, the town I currently live in, um, was a large portion of the audience was African-American and I'll never forget this. And it's as long and mind you, this is my account of what I witnessed. This isn't any kind of indictment on the individuals, you know, Rick and Scott Steiner. I enjoy their work as a tag team. I don't know their political beliefs and, and who they are as individuals, but this is just my account of what took place um, at this show. So please don't hang me for this. But Scott gets on the mic and he tells everyone to shut up, you know, standard, typical heel stuff. Um, but he almost he almost slipped out the N word um, and he had to redirect himself in mid sentence and call all of us rednecks, which was farthest from the truth. If you looked at the amount of people that were in this gym and, and who they were with, with no with no disrespect towards people who identify as rednecks because um, that's even considered a derogatory term to people from the south but nonetheless um so it just brought me back to that and i was like holy crap like what a time to to you know times have changed that's for sure you know what i mean homosexuality is an accepted thing unfortunately racism and bigotry is still in our world um and i'm not saying that scott steiner is a racist or a bigot by any means i really am not um so for those of you out there that you know are listening to this that think i'm you know bad mouthing scott steiner i'm just giving you a first-hand account of what i saw and, and trying to draw that parallel to what i witnessed on the the recap here so it just brought me back to that and reminded me of that and i know i just kind of went around the block a few times and off the beaten path um but uh you know let's let's get back to recapping this match here um this match you could see when it comes to scott the potential he has as a singles performer everything he did the crowd went crazy for good look charismatic um girls were kind of going crazy for him um, you know, you could definitely see, like, looking at this, how he could have been a huge single star. And he was a pretty big single star for the most part. He totally reinvented himself after they split him up with Rick in WCW in later years. But in this performance here, you just could see that potential. You know what I mean? Like, you could definitely see that potential. I believe at that time, they were toying with the idea of wanting to you know, separate Rick and Scott and have Scott go for um, the heavyweight title. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Scott would wrestle Ric Flair for the world title at a Clash of Champions a number of years, or about six or seven months later. Um, and that was like around the idea of when they were trying to toy with him as a singles competitor in, in the main event scene. But you definitely saw by his performance what kind of potential he would have. Um, the Steiners, they have a very physically intimidating style, and they were the aggressors in this match, that's for sure. All their 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 high-impact moves, the clotheslines, the suplexes, um, they, they really meshed well with the Freebirds, who were the chicken shit heels in this match. Um, you could see that the Birds' best in-ring days were slowing down a bit. Um, they held their own, and they they set a very methodical pace with their in-ring psychology against the, the high-impact maneuvers that the Steiners brought. Um, but the Birds' best days were behind them, but they were still a pretty formidable, skilled team in this presentation with the Steiner brothers. Um, the finish came when Jimmy Garvin made a blind tag while the referee was dealing with Rick Steiner, nailing a DDT on Scott Steiner. He went for the cover, but when the referee turned around, he wouldn't count because he didn't see the actual tag. And as he's dealing with that, Rick comes in, 
delivers a belly to belly to Michael Hayes. Scott goes for the cover, one, two, three, and your winners at 13 minutes and 45 seconds, the Steiner brothers. Um, solid match. Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't... I ex maybe I expected more from these two teams, but it was still a pretty fun match. Um, I'll be honest with you, it, it, for the most part, you know, maybe it's just the way I'm conditioned to watch wrestling, but um, I was expecting um, the birds to be a little bit more aggressive in this match um, and really, sh really give us more of a reason to get behind the Steiner brothers. You know, because the Steiners were very aggressive in this match, um, which kind of goes back to their match with Ole and Arn Anderson from Wrestle War 1990, a few months prior to this, which I did a blind date diary um, on back in February. You can find that in the archives. Um, yeah, the Birds did a good job trying to get the crowd to hate them, but the Steiners were just so overpowering and their style was just so physical and intense, um, very aggressive that, uh, you know, it... it it, it made for a different story told in this match. Like I said, I was expecting the birds to be a little bit more aggressive on the heel side and really um, put the heat on the Steiners, but the Steiners just kind of got the best of them every single time. I guess maybe that was the story that was intended, but I expected something a little different, but it was a fun match nonetheless. Um, we cut back to Jim Ross and Bob Cottle where they, uh, they hype up the next pay-per-view, which would take place in October, Halloween Havoc 1990. Um, and they also preview the remaining matches on this card, including, Including the in-ring debut of Ellie Gante, plus more hype from the two of them surrounding the main event, talking about Sting's knee injury. And as we know, Sting was injured and was scheduled to face Ric Flair earlier, a few months prior at the Wrestle War pay-per-view. Luger had to fill in for him in the main event, which was a great match too. Um, but uh, they talked about Sting's knee injury and is he 100% and Flair being the the the, the technician and the veteran that he is is going to work on that knee. I just thought like the, the hype going into that match was top notch stuff. We don't really get a whole lot of these days. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, not to that extent. I thought they really did a great job. Like I said, that common thread throughout the night, really remind, you know, reminding us and letting us know the importance of the main event that's coming up and a match that you're definitely not going to want to miss. Um, our next match here is the Horsemen. Arn Anderson, Sid Vicious, and Barry Windham taking on the Dudes with Attitudes, Junkyard Dog, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ohndorf, and El Gigante. Um, you know, the, the, the hype going into it and even during the commentary showed that this match was really all about showcasing El Gigante's debut. However, he hardly took part in the match, um, which was obvious because you know he had no experience wrestling um and you know, he was brought in originally um that you know they they wcw wanted him to be their version of andre the giant um he was he originally tried out for the atlanta hawks basketball team and uh didn't make the cut as big as he was he was seven feet four seven feet five maybe i think he was definitely taller than andre um and WCW snatched him up and said, well, we'll train him to wrestle. And they brought him out there too early, and he had no business being out there. Um, and like I said, it was funny that, like, on commentary, they talked a lot about um, the, the the debut of Eligante in the ring and what he is capable of or what he's going to do to the horsemen. But he was only in there twice, I believe. I think in the opening sequence, he kind of scared them off and they all scattered around the ring. And then at the end, he kind of did the same thing, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, one thing I did notice about this, another thing I should say I noticed about this match was that how popular Sid was with the crowd. A lot of Sid chants, Sid rules, we want Sid kind of filled the arena. Um, no wonder, no wonder why Vince McMahon in years later would want to position Sid as his top baby face. That crowd was eating it up for him. Every time Sid did something, they, they reacted to it and very positively. Um, the commentators even brought up the popularity of Sid as a member of the Horsemen. Um, and to me, and I'll talk about it at a, at a, at a later podcast, but there is so much unlimited potential and creative scenarios 
that you could have put Sid in throughout his entire career. It's unfortunate. He should have had a much better career than he did. And I'm not saying he had a bad career, but I know that there's been a lot of issues with um, personal issues and injuries and things that have just kind of affected him from really going higher up than he did in his wrestling career. Um, and that's something that I'll get into at a later date. But uh, we definitely could see here in this match, it showed when it came to his popularity and I was just floored by it because as I, you know, at least I wasn't floored by it then because as a kid, I didn't pay attention to that stuff and I didn't even watch this match as a kid. So when I looked at Sid, I thought Sid was this mean, nasty guy that just, you know, was, <laughs> I was afraid of him. He had this intimidating look, even as a youngster. Now, obviously 30 years later, I'm 37 years old and, uh, I was I was just I was a little taken aback by the popularity of him in this match. I really was. Um because I didn't watch this back then, so maybe that's probably why. Um However, as far as this match goes, there's really nothing to write home about when it came to the quality of the match. It was actually pretty sloppy. Not a lot of chemistry between these guys. Um it's a lot of time the crowd was not into it. Anything if Sid did something, they were. Everyone else it was like crickets, and I'm not kidding you. Especially with the level of talent you had in there. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, you had Barry Windham, you had Arn Anderson, even Junkyard Dog, even though his better days are behind him. Um, yeah, they didn't, they, you know, at one point they tried to, to, to do the babyface hot tag, um, and the crowd, there was like nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, no reaction to it whatsoever. I don't know if they were uninterested in the match or if they were you know tired from the previous matches before I don't know but this match not very good um not really into it um the only the, the one point in time in the when the crowd seemed to get behind the baby faces like I said was when Eligante would get in the ring um and chase off the horseman he got a little bit physical with them and threw them around um and threw him out of the ring. Um, and then out of nowhere, after he did that, Jim Ross on commentary announces that the horseman had been disqualified. Um, and then Gary Michael Capetta, the ring announcer, made it official over the house mic, and the winners at 8 minutes and 53 seconds were the dudes with attitudes. Um, and then, you know, the horseman just powder off, and the baby faces leave as well. And there was no explanation behind the DQ. There was no replay. Um, it wasn't even mentioned on commentary. I just found it to be very, very strange. It was just all of a sudden, Eligante came in. He threw all the, the heels out of the ring. Um, didn't do the greatest job of that either. I mean, it was it just it was not a good match at all. I, I and then the finish, like I said, was never explained why the horseman got disqualified. Literally, Eligante throws him out. Ross says they've been DQ'd. Ref makes it official. Bell rings. Gary Capetta announces it. And that was the end of it. No reason why. So I'm still trying to figure that out to this day. Um, up next, Gordon Soley has another uh, interview at the, at the podium, but with Lex Luger discussing his United States Championship matchup against Mean Mark along with Paul E. Dangerously. Um... Luger threatens to take out Paul Lee if he got involved. Um, and then he shifts over to discussing the main event world title match once again, predicting a Sting world title victory. Once again, continuing that thread, the importance of this match. Good stuff. Um, and then we have... Now, this is funny, too, because these interviews that took place weren't pre-taped. They were on the podium. They were following the matches. The crowd in the audience was was paying attention to it. You could see in the background the way that the camera was positioned. You could see the wrestlers walking up the ramp, going back to the dressing room, and, you know, Luger standing in front of the camera cutting the promo. And then we get to the next match, and it's Mean Mark Calloway, or Mean Mark, as he was referred to as, with Paulie Dangerously making his way down the aisle. Um, and then after that, Luger comes out through the curtain, and does his entrance, which I just was kind of a little baffled by. I know the champion comes out last, but if he if you have him out there cutting a promo, why don't you just have him make his way out on you know from the ramp to the ring? You know why did you have to go through that whole thing again where he had to go back into the locker room and then around the corner through the curtain and then out again? Like it was just it was silly, um, at least for me. Maybe that's just me nitpicking, but I just thought it was silly. Um, this match here, not a great match. Not a great match at all. Uh, well, you know, let me take that back. It was okay. All right? It was okay. 
given the circumstances. Um, if, if you know, for those of you that, like I said, if you're not aware, if you don't know now, you know. I mean, Mark, Undertaker. Voila! Um, and we would see early shades of the Undertaker athleticism with you know the the running of the ropes and flying clothesline and um the 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 walking the top rope thing um we would see early shades of his athleticism here um in this match uh, it was a very slow methodical style to this match me and mark had kind of set the pace there with that um i've said this before when luger is paired with a good worker we see the best of him we see his best outing not saying that he's terrible without like a guy like a rick flair but um these these two just did not mesh well, and it seems to be the theme amongst several matches on this card. Um, I think that I think Main Mark's lack of experience and Luger's ability working with a guy like him played a part in that. Um, and it's I don't mean that to come I don't mean to sound like I'm shitting on it, but you could just tell that these two were not used to working with each other. They didn't have a good they didn't have good chemistry. The timing wasn't there. Um, even though the crowd was into it, maybe it's because Luger was popular and Dangerously was a good heel manager. Um, I, I felt like they didn't get into the 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 bell-to-bell -bell action of the match, but more of the storytelling aspects, like the finish, for instance. Um, when Mean Mark attempted a heart punch on Luger, but he countered and nailed him with a boot to the face, then Luger turns around, nails Paul Lee, and he bounces off the ropes, and his momentum turns into a clothesline onto Mean Mark for the win at 12 minutes and 10 seconds. Crowd popped big for that, okay? But I felt like in other parts of the match, when it came to the skill and bell-to-bell -bell action, they, they didn't really care for it. Um, that match ends at 12 minutes and 10 seconds. Like I said, not the best. Um, it was okay. Um, maybe, you know, those two needed more time to work with each other before they put out a big high-profile match on pay-per-view. Don't know, but uh, just wasn't the best outing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Lex Luger fan. I think Luger's done some great stuff in his career, but Luger like is one of those guys that, like, when he works with someone much better and much more, you know, on, on a higher skill level than him, you get the best of him. They bring the best out in Luger. These two did not bring the best out in each other, okay? And I'm no expert, but it just, I'm just a fan. I, I'm, I'm not in the business. I don't, I've never taken a bump. Well, actually I did take a bump once doing Ring Crew at an indie show years ago. Um, but I've never regularly taken bumps, never regularly participated in a match. But I think any person watching can look and say that those two were just not a good fit for each other. They were not good dance partners. Okay. Um, our next match here is for the World Tag Team. Oh, I'm sorry. We get a pre-tape interview with Gordon Soley, who's with Sting. Um, and this took place earlier in the evening in the locker room. Um, you know, Sting talks about being nervous going into this match, but he's also very confident that he can defeat Ric Flair. Um, I thought this was a, a, a solid promo from him. It wasn't anything special or anything to write home about, but... Um, it once again showed the importance not only you know for other wrestlers but now for sting the importance of him going into this match and the opportunity he has and coming back from this injury it, it i thought it was a nice touch that common thread that common thread of importance just keep they, they, they keep laying it on and it keeps working if it's not broke don't fix it in this case it wasn't broken um next match here is for the world tag team titles the rock and roll express taking on doom the champions um i didn't know what to make of this match going in um rock and roll express their resume speaks for themselves one of the the greatest tag teams of all time doom um i don't think i i think they're a good team I think they were a good team, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. Um, they had some great matches with the Road Warriors and with the Steiner Brothers. Um, and their run as a tag team, I thought, was pretty solid in the early days of WCW. Uh, but this was not a good pairing with them in the Rock and Roll Express. Um, another case where um, they just didn't click. They didn't mesh well. Their, their, their dance card was not complete. Um, this was a very slow match. And this was, I think... 
This match, more than anything, you could tell that the crowd was just not into it. Rock and roll over like a motherfucker. Doom, they were they were pretty over as a heel team. Teddy Long, you know, the the manager of that team, but it just it didn't. It didn't do it for me. Um, either the crowd was too tired from some of the other matches, um, or the, just the chemistry wasn't there. And I, I, I think it's a mixture of both. Uh, we saw Doom control the majority of the match with their 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 power man- maneuvers, their style with the heavy strikes and the slams. We saw a lot of quick tags between Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. Um, there was a brief moment where there was some kind of commotion going on in the stands that distracted the crowd from this match. Only lasted a couple of minutes, you know, two minutes tops, but uh, that seemed to get a bigger pop than what we saw in the ring. Um, I noticed that as I was watching this. I'm not sure if it was a fight, but it did definitely take away from the match. Um... You know, standard operating procedure when it comes to a Rock and Roll Express match, you put the heat on Ricky Morton. It's 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 something that, you know, is Tag Team Wrestling 101. I think Ricky Morton even invented the hot tag, okay? Um, and, and, and putting the heat on him and the way he sold. I will go on record to say that Ricky Morton is easily a top five babyface of all time by himself, okay? No disrespect to Robert Gibson, Okay, they were a great tag team, and I love the Rock and Roll Express. The stuff with the Midnights, stuff with the Freebirds. I mean, I, I you know I loved you know the stuff with the Russians and the Horsemen. I love the Rock and Roll Express, man. One of definitely on a Mount Rushmore of tag teams, that's for sure. But this instance here, it just didn't work. You know, even when they put the heat on Ricky and they made that hat tag to Robert. People were just not into it. It was literally the crowd went mild. And it's unfortunate because the Rock and Roll Express and Doom, they're both good teams. And like I said, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations going into it, good or bad. But I was surprised at how well this match didn't come off. Um... The crowd just, like I said, they didn't seem to care. Eventually, Gibson would get the hot tag. There'd be zero reaction. Um, they seemed dead for that at that point. Um, the finish came when Gibson nailed Butch Reed with an insiguri, which sends him through the second rope as Teddy Long, who is standing on the second rope, falls forward into the ring. Um, then Long distracted Gibson while the referee was dealing with Morton and Simmons on the other side. Reed came back in off the top rope, gave a shoulder block to Robert Gibson, covered him for the win at 15 minutes and 40 seconds. Um... I did not like this match. I was I was disappointed in this match, and I, it wasn't because of the 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 skill or, or of either team. They just it wasn't their day, man. It really wasn't their day. It just didn't work. Um, I don't know if they were trying to capitalize on the dynamic that the Rock and Roll Express had with the Russians, with um, Ivan and uh, Nikita, because uh, for a while, Ivan and Nikita, or even Crusher Khrushchev, um, they would have some matches against the Rock and Roll Express. Um, I believe they had a Starcade match, and, and uh, it would it would be one of the uh, cage match. And it would be one of the better matches with the 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 fast, quick-paced style of the Rock and Roll Express against the the big, muscular, you know, smash-mouth, powerful, methodical style of the of the Russians, Ivan and Nikita Koloff. Um, I don't know if they were trying to go with that dynamic, but it just didn't work with with them and Doom. It really didn't. Um, we cut to a, another pre-tape interview with Gordon Soley and Ric Flair from earlier in the day. Standard Flair promo. Talks about his custom suit, all the jewelry he's wearing, you know, women, the money. To be the man, you got to beat the man, Sting, etc., etc. What can you say? You know, you see, you've seen one, you've seen them all, I guess. Um, and then we come back, and it's uh, Bob Cottle and Jim Ross previewing the main event. You see the dudes with attitudes at ringside, along with the Steiner brothers. Um, Ole Anderson and the Horsemen are banned from ringside. However, Ole Anderson is going to be handcuffed to Eligante. Um, and we get to our main event. It's Sting versus Ric Flair for the World Heavyweight Championship, the NWA World Heavyweight title. Um, Sting gets the, the big pyro treatment for his entrance. Um Arena's going pretty nuts for him. They're excited to see him decked out in the red, white, and blue. Uh, Flair gets his standard flashy entrance. Um, and Gary Michael Capetta, the ring announcer, um, goes over the stipulations spoken of earlier as we see Doug Dillinger and Jim Hurd handcuffing Ole Anderson to El Igante, which got a, a, a nice reaction. Um, 
the story of Sting's injured knee, courtesy of the Horseman, takes up the majority of this match on commentary. Um, you know, can Sting hang with Flair after recovering from knee surgery? Um, and I'll be honest with you, this was a great match from these two. Um, as, as over-cliched as this is, it had that big fight feel. And it was woven through the commentary on the broadcast all night. Um, Flair working on the injured knee was seemed to be the common theme of the match, um, wearing Sting down. But every time Flair seemed to gain the advantage, Sting kept coming back and found a way to hang with Flair. Um, at one point, you even saw Flair deliver his signature chops, and Sting was no-selling them. Um, an Irish whip into the security rail. Sting no-sold that, too, showing how he's this unbeatable hero that quite possibly has Ric Flair's number. Um, they even talked about their, their match at the Clash, uh, the very first Clash of Champions, and how Sting uh, was able to, to to keep up with Ric Flair. thought that was a nice touch on commentary. Um, but then, you know, as Sting would try to capitalize and get the advantage over Flair, Flair would find a way to work back, to, work back on that knee. Um, and he would light him up with some more chests. Eventually, Sting's chest was like super beat red, but Sting just kept coming back for more. Um, and, and really, in this match, you never really saw anyone gain the advantage um, for, a, for a lengthy period of time, which seemed to be a theme with recent Sting matches I've watched. That match that he had with... Um, with Lex Luger at Super Brawl 2 for our Blind Date Diaries, which you can find in the archives. Uh, Sting seemed to be the aggressor, but Luger didn't really have a whole lot of dominance over him. Uh, and that was a pretty short match too, but um, kind of seeing some of that here with this match, but with a better story told, obviously being Ric Flair. Um, this was really fun, back and forth between these two. Crowd... Anytime Flair did something, they booted. Every time he chopped, they wooed. Every time Sting came back, they went crazy. Um, and then we see Sting get Flair in the Scorpion Deathlock as the Horsemen run down, only to be met by the dudes with attitudes on the ramp, and they start to brawl for a little bit. Um, Flair would eventually manage to escape the Scorpion Deathlock during that part of the match. Um, got a lot of near-fall attempts by both men at this point, a lot of roll-ups, uh, crowd on their feet for each near fall uh, and then eventually the finish came when Flair went for the figure four but Sting rolled him up for the cradle to win the championship at 16 minutes and zero seconds new NWA World Heavyweight Champion Sting um, crowd went crazy for it you could hardly hear Jim Ross on commentary we saw pyrotechnics and the baby faces got in the ring to congratulate him and uh, raise his hand hand him the title um, Sting walked up the ramp posing for the crowd as we got more pyrotechnics going off Gordon Soley came out to interview Sting and uh, Sting really put over Flair as the greatest world champion of all time it was kind of like a kayfabe moment um, where he, he kind of broke kayfabe a little bit but without really breaking kayfabe um talked about having some big shoes to fill as the world heavyweight champion and that he was going to do the best he can for all the fans that supported him uh nice nice promo to 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 end the celebration uh jim ross and bob Collar recap sting's victory as he comes back to the ring to the pose for the crowd one more time and the pay-per-view ends roll credits and that's the end of wcw great american bash 1990 um on paper this was a good show, um, but going back and watching it, you know, some okay stuff. If there's anything you want to watch, it's the main event and the U.S. tag title matches that are worth your time. Um, if you were to compare this to a good blind date, it was a good appetizer in the tag title match and a good meal in the main event, but the rest of the date, really nothing to write home about. I will not watch this show back again uh, from start to finish unless I'm forced to at gunpoint. Um, just not a lot of good stuff on this card, but um, the main event and the, the U.S. tag title match um, make it for me. And that's where I stand with this blind date of WCW Great American Bash 1990. You can find it on WWE Network if you want to watch it. You want to go back and watch it while you're listening to this recap or you want to watch it for yourself. And if you think differently, if you thought it was a better show than how I had played it out to me then by all means fire it up on social media let me know either slide my dms or make it public on on both facebook and twitter tell me why you think it was good or bad was this a good blind date for you was this a bad blind date for you let us know on both facebook and twitter um 
And that about does it for this blind date diary of Great American Bash 1990. Thank you all so very much uh, for tuning in, hitting the download button, checking us out this week. Next week, we are going to continue with the WCW theme, but this time we're going to go 10 years later, and we are going to celebrate the 20-year anniversary of the most infamous worked shoot failed attempt at a work shoot i should say in all of pro wrestling i'm talking about the bash at the beach 2000 incident with hulk hogan vince russo jeff jarrett booker t and eric bischoff uh that we're going to cover in our trading places format and for those of you that are new to the party or for those of you that need a little reminder trading places is a scenario where we we flip the results and we 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 try to figure out the trajectory of the winners and losers of the particular match in this instance we're going to try and map out the trajectory had this worked shoot gone on as planned okay what would happen if hulk hogan won the title and stayed with wcw instead of walking out what happened if vince russo would have never cut that work shoot promo would we eventually have gotten the big payoff from this work shoot how would that have gone down how could that have gone down we'll discuss that in all you know next week here with trading places wcw bash at the beach 2000 the following week we're going to give you another blind date diary as we're going to be covering ecw heatwave 2000 i am actually in the middle of watching that show currently to give you guys a recap and uh i can't wait to uh let you know if that was a good blind date or a bad blind date the following week another trading places celebrating the 20-year anniversary of wwf fully loaded 2000 what if chris benoit left that pay-per-view with the wwf championship what if chris jericho defeated triple h in the last man standing match what if kurt angle defeated the undertaker that big triple triple main event that was advertised for that card was definitely a turning point or at least some thought was going to be a turning point for you know Jericho, Benoit, and Angle, who were new to the main event scene in the WWF at the time. What happens if all those results took place? How would that affect the future moving forward in those particular storylines for WWF? I'll give you my honest and comprehensive thoughts on what I think could have taken place with that Trading Places scenario and all the other matches on that card. And then we close out the month of July with another Blind Date Diary, this time covering In Your House 2, headlined by Big Daddy Cool Diesel defending the WWF Championship against Psycho Sid, as well as Jeff Jarrett or defending the Intercontinental Championship against the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels and some other great matches that are, are not so great matches on that card. I haven't watched that show yet, but I'm going to watch it. I'm going to let you know if that's a good blind date or a bad blind date. The only show, the only match on that card I've ever seen was the Michaels Jarrett Intercontinental title match. I've never watched the whole show from start to finish. So uh, I'll let you know if that's another blind date that's worth checking out or if it's uh, you know a one and done in my black book of wrestling pay-per-views. And that about does it this week here on Kicking Out of Two. I think it's about that time that we officially put this show down for the three count and we'll see you all next week.